A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13 and 24 through 27. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall be burned. In, the, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to, will befall, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Thanks, Laura. As I mentioned, this is the 10th and final plague to strike Israel, and it is the one that ultimately led Israel out of slavery. And I don't want us just to take that for granted and miss the significance and the enormity of what is happening in this passage. Um, We're told at the end of chapter 12 that the number of Israelites that left were 600,000 men. So that doesn't include the women and children. So it may have been 600,000 households. Um, And it also says there were a multitude of others which may have been slaves from other nations or maybe even Egyptians that came to believe in Israel's God. And don't miss the fact that Israel had been in slavery for 430 years. Now here's some perspective for that. The pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. And so this December, the descendants of the pilgrims will have been in the U.S. for 403 years. That's 27 years less than Israel was in Egypt. And something significant 
happened that night so significant that probably over a million people who'd been living in Israel for 430 years left overnight. And not only did they leave in one night, but Israel, but the Egyptians sent them packing with gold and silver. Well, what was it? What was it that led to this exodus? Well, Laura just read it for us. It was the Passover. It was a night when God sent someone or some thing called the destroyer to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt. All the firstborn. Not just the children, but animals too. Verses 29 and 30 give us a glimpse of the horrific scene in Egypt that night. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Chuck DeGroat points out in his book, Leaving Egypt, the Passover strikes us first as a gruesome affair, a bloodbath. Well, why? Why this way? Why did this have to happen? Well, God is answering a question that Pharaoh asked last week. If you missed last week's sermon, AK preached a wonderful sermon. I would encourage you to listen to it on the podcast if you missed it. But early on in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, hey, you need to set God's people free. And this is how Pharaoh responds. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? And God's answer in verse 12 will make Pharaoh regret, regret ever asking his question because this is what he said. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Israel, of, of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Mic drop. And he does it in the most bloody way. And so let's dig in and learn about the Lord of the Passover. And in doing so, we're going to see the essence, the very essence of the gospel that we learn about in the New Testament. Now, the, verse, the very first thing we can see out of the gate is that God does not tolerate sin from anyone. And this is something that is so easy to miss but so important to note because of the previous nine plagues, the Israelites were largely unaffected. When the locusts came, they devoured the crops of the Egyptians but not the Hebrews. When the darkness came, it descended on the Egyptians but in Goshen where the Hebrews lived, it remained light. When the frogs and the gnats came, the same thing happened but not with the tenth plague. This affected all of the firstborn in Egypt. Babies and animals, Israel and Egypt, but why? Why does it affect everyone? Because God is essentially saying to the Hebrews, you think your biggest problem is your physical enslavement to Egypt, but it's not. The biggest problem you have is your spiritual slavery to sin, and the same is true for the Egyptians. There is one terrible common denominator between the Jews and the Egyptians, and it is their sin. It is the great equalizer and completely levels the playing field. And because of this sin that they were carrying, what is the eventual outcome? Well, God tells Adam in Genesis 2, 
where we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but not, not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we talked about this particularly over the last couple weeks as we looked at the signs that God gave Moses to show Israel and to show Egypt, that there's a natural order to the world that God has created. And if we go against his commandments, if we rebel against him, things that are pure like water turn into blood. That's the inevitable outcome, blood. Death is inevitable. It's a natural consequence of our sin against God. And this still rings true today because as Paul tells us in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on in Romans 6 to say, for the wages of sin is death. You see, the sin that's at the heart of both Egypt and Israel is idolatry. The Egyptians were polytheists. They had multiple gods. They had a Nile god, a sun god, a fertility god, and in the plagues, God dismantled them one by one. But the Jews were idolaters too, and we don't need to miss that. We say here from time to time that heart idolatry is taking anything, even a good thing, and making it an ultimate thing, thinking if I just had that, I would finally be happy. For the Jews, it was freedom out of Egypt, and for Pharaoh, it was control. What is it for you? What is it, the one thing that you can identify that if you just had it, you would finally be significant, happy, and fulfilled? Or what's the thing in your life that if you lost it, you would almost rather die? Growing up for me, it was playing college football. I thought that if I could just go play college football, that is all that I would need. In college and after college, I thought it was just to get married, and then it was to have kids, and then it was to have a certain job. And even now, and this is something that I've really felt the weight of this week. I have really struggled because I thought if I just had more money, I wouldn't worry anymore. You know, inflation is real and kids are expensive. And I just lay in bed at night thinking I wouldn't be so stressed if I just had X amount of money in my bank account. And so what that means for me personally is that money is my functional God. It is the idol that I look to for my security and for my comfort Theologian John Calvin once said that our hearts are idle factories, and mine certainly is. And what is it for you? Where is it you look for your significance and your worth? What is the one thing you look at in your life and think, if I lost that, I would rather die, or if I got that, I would finally be happy, because whatever it is, that is your functional God. That is your idol, and that is sin. And as God told Adam, you will surely die. Our sin at the end of the day requires blood. Well, aren't you glad you came today? Well, there is hope, and that's where we go in our second point as we look at the blood of the Lamb. Let's read together verses 21 through 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Put the blood on the lintel and the doorposts. And he says, and don't you dare leave the house. 
You need to stay under the blood. And when God sees it, the destroyer will pass you over. And notice this. God doesn't say, go get some red paint and paint it on your lentils or your doorpost. It had to be blood. Because as Leviticus 17 tells us, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is in the blood that makes atonement by the life. The lamb had to die. Its blood was shed, so the firstborn's wasn't. The lamb's life was a substitute for the life of the firstborn, a life for a life. To put it crassly, in every home in Egypt that night, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. The lamb got what the son deserved. And just think about this. Think about that son, that firstborn, sitting at the table, thinking the only way I don't die tonight is because that did. It died for me. Sin requires blood, and somebody had to die. But God is saying to his people, it doesn't have to be you. That is grace. That is undeserved. The Hebrews, like the Egyptians, deserve to die, but God, for his people, provided a substitute. That is amazing, amazing grace. But what about for us? Do we need to go sacrifice some lamb? Do we need to start that tradition all over again in Christianity? We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against him. We have broken his commandments. What do we do about the debt that we owe? And make no mistake, The debt that we owe is blood. Well, here's what we need to realize. For the Hebrews, the death and the blood of the lamb spared them from judgment, but just that night, it delivered them out of political slavery, but not spiritual. And the principle is still in effect, but the lamb could never satisfy it. Well, there's an even more amazing grace that this night points to. Tim Chester wrote, So the sacrifice of a lamb means that there is unfinished business. After all, who really thinks a lamb is a fair exchange for a human life? It's an embodied promise of a true substitute. The Passover is the sign of a greater act of redemption. So we need to fast forward 1,400 years on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And Jesus is presiding over the meal, and he says something that would have completely blown their minds. He stood up to speak, and the disciples would have absolutely expected this because in Exodus 12 and 13, there's actually some kind of guidance given to whoever's hosting the meal around what they should say. But what Jesus said, they would have never have imagined. Jesus stands up, and the disciples expect him to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we can be set free. But instead, he stands up and he says, this is my body. This bread is my body. This is the bread of my affliction that I am going to suffer to give you the ultimate freedom. True freedom. Not just physical and political freedom from slavery, but spiritual freedom from sin and death itself. He's saying that it is in in my body breaking and being broken that you are actually going to have liberation. And that would have completely shocked them. They would have never heard that before. And the other thing that would have been really shocking for them is that in the Passover, there's three key elements. Okay, there's the bread that we just alluded to. There's the four glasses of wine that are there that Jesus mentions. 
But there's another key element that seems to be missing from the gospel accounts, and that key element is the lamb. The disciples would have shown up, and there would have been no lamb on the table. They would have seen the bread. They would have seen the wine, but where is the lamb? You see, the lamb was there, but the lamb wasn't on the table. The lamb was at the table hosting the meal. He was standing at the table right in front of them. Jesus was telling and showing his disciples, I am the lamb. I am the ultimate lamb that's going to bring liberation, whose blood has to be shed to bring true freedom. The final lamb, which every lamb pointed to, God had been setting the stage for that moment for a thousand years and even longer than that. As Jesus' own cousin pointed out in John 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul later wrote, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. You know, in John 19, we're told that none of Jesus' bones were broken on the cross. And why is that? Because the Passover lamb had to be perfect and without blemish. And Jesus Christ was perfect in every way. In Matthew 27, we're told that Jesus was killed at twilight. And why is that? Because the Passover lamb was slain at twilight. Our firstborns and every single one of us can be saved from judgment, not because of the death of some sheep, But we are ultimately saved because God gave up his firstborn. He gave us his Passover lamb. He gave him to you. He gave him to me. Now that is grace. Author and musician Michael Carr described grace as when someone from whom you deserve nothing gives you everything. And in Jesus, that is what we've been given. Well, what do we do with all this that we've been given? Well, most importantly, we have to do what God told the Hebrews. We need to stay in the house under the blood of the Lamb. God tells the Hebrews, if you leave the house to face my judgment on my own, you will be killed. But if you stay under the blood of the Lamb, you will be delivered. And the same is true for us. If we try to face God's judgment on our own, we are toast. We have to stay in the house under the blood of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. It's either our blood or his blood. So let me ask you, are you in the house? Do you look to the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus, to cover your sins, to pay the penalty for your sin, or would you rather risk it and take your chances that maybe you've done enough to hold off the wrath of God? Because let me tell you, there is a way that you can live your life that when you face judgment, the wrath of God can pass from you, but you need to know the standard is perfection. Are you perfect? And I'm not talking about your entire life. How about today? Have you made mistakes today? Have you thought inappropriate thoughts today? Have you said anything harsh today? Or do you need a substitute? And I will tell you that the answer for all of those questions for all of us is a resounding yes. And here's what is so beautiful. The destroyer passing over the house had nothing to do with the moral resumes or the quality of faith of the ones in the homes. Think about it. On the night of the Passover in Egypt, there would have been all kind of firstborn sons. Right? Maybe a family had just welcomed their first baby. 
And that baby can't say or do anything. Maybe there was a firstborn who did terrible things. Maybe even criminal things. Maybe there was a firstborn that thought, I don't think this is actually going to work out. Or maybe there was another firstborn that thought there is absolutely 100% no way I'm going to die tonight. It didn't matter what the firstborn did, said, or thought. All that mattered is that they were in the house, covered by the blood. God said, I will see the blood, and my judgment will pass over you no matter what you have done. Again, that is grace. That is amazing grace. That is the gospel, and it is for you right now. When God set up the Passover meal, he said, eat in haste. And you, the same is available for you. So eat in haste, in a sense. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I hope that is true for some of you today. I hope that for you today is the day of salvation. Let the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, lamb, set you free. Free from our idols and from the sin that so easily entangles us. Let his righteousness, let his perfection be yours. He is offering it right now. Right now. It is the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, that sets us free. But the question is, what are we free to do? What does that even mean? Well, in verse 31, Pharaoh finally gets something right. After the Passover night, this is what happened. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Go, serve the Lord. Other translations say worship. Worship and serve the Lord. Well, how do we do that? What does that even look like? Well, we're told in verses 24 through 27, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. God said, I want you to do this every year for all of eternity. I want this to remind you of what I've done. I want you to remember. You know, remembering is a key, th- key theme throughout the entire Bible that we are to remember who we are, that we are created in dignity, but we need to remember what we've done to that dignity, that we have shattered it through our sin. And we need to remember that because of that, what we deserve, that we deserve God's wrath. But more importantly, we need to remember the deliverance that God provided at great cost to himself, our Passover lamb. And we need to remember what his deliverance did. It took you from being a slave and it made you a son or daughter of the Most High God. When we remember what we deserve and that we didn't get it, that we got grace, that we deserve nothing, but God gave us everything, it will reorient how we live our lives. 
Because to remember the gospel, it doesn't motivate our behavior to become acceptable before God. Instead, because the blood of the Lamb made us right before God, we begin to ask the question, how do I live my life in response to that? How, do I, how does my life reflect the great sacrifice that was made to set me free? How do I raise my children in response to that? How do I handle my finances in response to that? How do I work in response to that? When you really understand the gospel and when you constantly remember it, then all of life is worship. And that's the reason why we come here and we take this revised Passover feast. We come here to be reminded. We come here to remember in verse 26, Moses told the Hebrews that when their children asked, what do you mean by this service? He said to tell them that it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And really, ultimately, we can say the very same thing about this meal we're about to take. When you think about why do we take this meal, we take this meal to remember that we were in bondage under a sentence of death, but we trusted the promises of God, and we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he let us out. And now we are on our way to the promised land. We are not there yet. But because of his blood sacrifice, he promises to be with us and to go with us until we get to our everlasting home. But here's what we have to remember. At the end of Exodus 12, God tells Moses who can and can't eat the meal. And he says, this is the Lord's Passover. This is my meal. And the same is true with this, the Lord's Supper. There are also stipulations around who can and cannot eat this meal. And let me tell you, if you live under the blood of the Lamb, that's the stipulation. And that's the only one. If you look to Jesus' broken body and shed blood to remove God's judgment for you, this meal is for you. Come and remember. Come and remember. This table is a place to be reminded that your sin and my sin is so terrible that it required the blood and the death of God, but you were so loved that he gladly gave up his life for you. But if that's not you... Do not take this meal in an unworthy manner. If you don't believe this, don't fake it. If you think this is too good to be true, let me tell you, it is too good to be true, but it is true. 100% factually true. But if you don't believe this, or even let me see this, say this, maybe if you're not sure if you believe that or not, don't violate your conscience by doing something that you don't actually believe in. Don't be a hypocrite. Instead, keep your seat. No one will judge you. No one will even notice. Instead, pray. And there's some prayers on the back of your bulletin to guide your personal time of reflection. And please, come and talk to me. Come talk to someone in leadership. We would love to dialogue with you more about this faith. So we are told that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that again, remember that shocking statement, he stood up before his disciples and did not say, this is the bread of our forefathers, our ancestors' affliction. He said, this is my body that is going to be afflicted for you. It's going to be broken for you. Take and eat and remember me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is my blood. This is the blood of the lamb. 
poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember, come and drink. This morning, just given the gravity of this passage, we're going to take communion silently. We're going to take time to just reflect and pray and thank God for his sacrifice for our sins. This is a great chance to meditate on his great love for you. A time to thank him. Here's the beauty of it. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you don't have to ask God for forgiveness. You've been forgiven. You can thank him for the undeserved forgiveness that you've received by covering you in his blood. And so I'm going to pray for us. And if those that are helping with communion would come forward, after a few minutes of prayer and reflection, once everybody has been served, then we're going to take this meal together. I say this every week that the easiest way to take communion here, kind of given the setup practically, is to come to the middle aisle to take the elements and then go to the outside and take them back to your seat so we can take them as a family of, of believers. Uh, the inner eight cups are wine and everything else is grape juice. Gluten-free is in the prepackaged cup. And this morning, just as in the Passover meal, our bread is actually unleavened this morning. And so let me pray. Lord, my prayer is simply what we sang uh, for the offertory. Lord, let your judgment pass over us. Lord, let your love hover near. Don't let your sweet mercy pass over us. Lord, let this blood cover over us here. In your name I pray.